Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Interview with Raymond Lau, conducted by John Price for Maclopedia, Hayden Books, 1996. Ray Lau invented Stuffit, the most popular compression software in the Macintosh world, when he was a teenager. He's now a grad student at MIT. His PhD dissertation? A novel framework for modeling subword lexical phenomena in speech recognition, which provides a flexible and powerful mechanism for capturing morphology, syllabification, phonology, and other subword effects in a hierarchical manner which maximizes sharing of subword structures. I suppose you could think of maximizing the sharing of subword structures as a type of compression. I know it's a little weird having one person voice both halves of an interview, so to help you distinguish who's who, the interviewer will sound like this, as if they're on the phone, and Raymond Lau will sound like this. What was your first experience with the Macintosh? My first exposure to a Mac was the original Mac 128K back in April of 1984. What impressed me the most at the time was the ease with which a printer, the original image writer, could be set up. You just plugged it in, picked print, and it worked. My prior experiences with computers were with a wide assortment of home computers, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, etc., and in no case was one able to just plug in a new peripheral and have it work immediately. Of course, other early positives included the what-you-see-is-what-you-get nature of MacWrite, the only word processor available at the time, the sharp monitor, albeit in black and white, and the mouse-based interface. A big negative at the time was the constant floppy disk swapping. This was before there were hard drives, so you had to keep your system files, applications, and data files on floppies. And of course, things would never fit on just one 400k floppy, hence the need to constantly swap each time you did anything. How did you get the idea for Stuff It, and what were your experiences as you developed it? The Macintosh was still a new platform in 1987, and many enthusiasts, myself included, had an insatiable appetite for trying new software. We would frequent CompuServe, Genie, the local BBSs, and so on. The dominant compression utility for the Mac back then was Harry Chesley's Packet 3. Packet was somewhat slow, but it was missing one feature which I, and many others, longed for. Namely, to get to, for example, the fifth file in an archive, you had to wait for it to decompress the first four files. An acquaintance with whom I frequently exchanged files by modem showed me several compression utilities on the DOS platform, which did allow the user to skip around and also to list an archive's contents. The seed for a new application was thus firmly planted. During the summer of 87, the first version of Stuff It was created. As an added bonus, the algorithm I had decided to implement also compressed files better than Packet 3. By fall, .sit had become a dominant Macintosh standard. I would say that there were two particularly memorable experiences during my subsequent work on StuffIt. The major one was, of course, the initial effort to establish the product as a standard. The other memorable experience, or rather series of experiences, 
was the transition from shareware to a commercial product. The lessons learned here are too numerous to list. Perhaps the most important was, if it isn't easy to use, people won't use it. StuffIt was born in a power user environment, and quite a few interface enhancements and feature set simplifications were needed along the way. How many jokes have been made about the difficulty of programming a VCR? Along the same lines, there is something to be said about polish. By this, I mean that a good piece of software should be pleasant and smooth to use. I'm a self-professed utilitarian, but I've now come to believe that the extra effort needed for the final 10% is a must for a good product. Putting the finishing touches on a piece of software has also taught me some of my own limitations. I am not that good of an artist, but fortunately, in an advanced society like ours, specialization is the norm and not the exception. How did you get the word out about your creations? To this day, I'm surprised that word got out at all. Certainly, I wasn't a major marketing and distribution powerhouse. All I did was post the early versions on CompuServe, Genie, Delphi, and several local BBSs. At some point, several New York-based BBSs started accepting uploads in StuffIt format, and shortly thereafter, one of the commercial services did too, and then the others followed. Why things worked out is a question to which I will probably never learn the definitive answer. Some of the favorable factors included 1. The driving forces behind the online community at the time were Macintosh power users, who were more receptive to adopting new standards if technological merits warranted it, and 2. The previous standard, Packet 3, did not appear to be actively supported, whereas I exhibited a clear willingness to continue supporting StuffIt. Can you tell us about some of the engineers you've met or worked with to give us a glimpse behind the scenes of the culture that spawned the Mac? My personal experiences with people who worked for Apple itself were far and few between, and instead mention a fellow programmer who is a true hacker in the Macintosh tradition. This person is Leonard Rosenthal, who Aladdin, my publisher, was fortunate enough to have hired. Here was a person who would never tire of playing with the latest system software enhancements Apple had to offer, who would come up with trick after trick, and who knows almost everyone in the Macintosh software engineering community. We met via email, exchanging ideas and comments about each other's products. Because we lived in different cities, it wasn't until years later that we met in person. But Leonard would have an answer, be it the correct answer, a decent guess, or a referral to someone else in the know, to every Mac-related programming question I ever sent his way. And best of all, he would respond very promptly to email. Leonard is also one of the truly best prototypers I've seen. You give him a new API from Apple, and in short order, he'll have some neat demo employing the new technology. Where do you see the Mac's strengths now, and where would you advise the company to go in the future? Despite the arrival of Windows 95, I still believe that the Mac remains a smoother, easier, and more pleasant-to-use platform. Sure, there are some features in Windows which the Mac lacks, but consider doing something as mundane as simple file sharing between two computers on anything but a Mac. The few features which the Mac OS lacks can be easily implemented by Apple. 
I would say that the Mac's greatest strength is probably the loyal support of its users. It's hard to put a finger on exactly why there is an almost cult-like following among many. Perhaps this is because of the Mac's elegance, or maybe even because of its status as the alternative OS. Nevertheless, this following needs to be maintained. As far as my loyalty is concerned, I would say that Apple needs to maintain favorable price-performance profiles, particularly at the high-performance end of the scale. Pentium Pros are pretty damn impressive in performance at a reasonable cost. They need to maintain a competitive position in terms of software availability. This, unfortunately, seems to be a particularly vulnerable area, and aggressively roll out improvements in the Mac OS, especially in terms of reliability and performance in multitasking environments. I reboot my Mac several times a day due to crashes, but I reboot my son Unix workstation only once every few weeks. And now a second interview with Raymond Lau, this time conducted by Alex Kushner of the Apple Wizards eZine, self-published in DocMaker format. The Forgotten Prodigy, Raymond Lau, January 1998. What is your background in computing? Prior to the Macintosh, I was an Atari 800 owner. I guess I was an early nonconformist, since everyone else had Commodore 64s and Apple IIs at the time. Since then, I've primarily worked with Macs, Unix workstations of various flavors, most notably IBM's AIX, Sun, both SunOS and Solaris, and as a user, Windows 95 and NT. Where did stuff it come from? Did it come from a necessity for compression, or was it just an idea that seemed useful? Back then, with 2400 BPS modems just arriving on the scene, transferring data was quite painful. So compression was a matter of necessity for me. When did you start programming? What languages did you learn? What languages do you know now? Must have been 1982 on the Atari, in BASIC. Other languages I've worked with include C, Objective-C, C++, Pascal, Fourth, Schema, Lisp, a tad of mainframe work on PL8, this was when PCs were limited to 4 megabytes of memory, Java, Perl, Tickle, and some flavors of assembly, 6502 and 68K. I'm sure I must have missed a few less significant languages. However, I don't think that knowing a slew of languages is that important, since it doesn't take much effort to become functional in a new language, and software engineering is more about design than language mastery. What language was the original version of Stuff It written in? C. Originally Megamax C, but I soon moved to Lightspeed C, later known as ThinkC. ThinkC was quite a revolution for the Macintosh. Scott Watson of Red Rider fame once posted a comment on ThinkC's speed, and that was enough for me to go out and get a copy. And boy, it was fast compared to its predecessors. What used to take 20 to 30 minutes to compile only took about 5 minutes with Think. Was Stuff It an immediate hit, or did it take time to gain popularity? It depends on how you measure success. It took three or four months before becoming an accepted standard on all the then-dominant online services, CompuServe, Genie, Delphi, and Usenet's moderated binaries newsgroup for the Mac. It took maybe a year before registrations started coming in at a respectable pace. Before you released Stuff It, what were people's options for file compression? How did Stuff It improve over these? 
there were really only two, and only one of them was in widespread use. That was Harry Chesley's Packet 3. The big improvement, in my mind at least, was not the better compression. For that matter, the first release of Stuff It actually did a worse job on one class of files, Mac Paint files, which had a built-in compression that foiled Stuff It, but compressed slightly under Packet 3. Of course, with a slightly later release, Stuff It added an algorithm to address the problem. The big improvement was the ability to decompress, say, the fifth file without having to decompress files 1 through 4. Packet 3 not only didn't show you a list of files, allowing you to pick what to expand, but to skip an item actually required expanding it, even if you didn't save it to disk. On an 8 MHz 68000, this was quite time-consuming. Stuff It presented a list of everything in an archive, allowing you to pick and choose what to expand. Do the Stuff It products still use your initial algorithms for compression, or has that algorithm been updated? There have been two generations since the initial set of algorithms. There hasn't been one for a few years now, probably because the cost of an incompatible generation is much greater than getting an extra 5 or even 10%. Seagate came out with a negative forecast for 1998 today on the supply and demand situation in the disk drive industry. At under $300 for 6 gigabytes, remembering that this is January 1998, Storage is definitely getting very cheap, and I've already stood on the soapbox on the telecommunications revolution. At this point, it's really more a matter of usability than squeezing a few percentage points. When you created Stuff It, did you have any idea of how useful it would be for the Internet? Well, what Internet? Back then, it was bulletin boards, commercial online services, and Unix hosts connected via UUCP. Yes, the ARPANET did exist, but it consisted of only a handful of universities and military sites, none of which the average person, or even the average power user, had access to. But from the early positive feedback, it quickly became clear that there was definitely an audience amongst the online user community. How does it feel to be the creator of one of the most widely used and commended pieces of software for the Macintosh? I'm quite flattered. Of course, there were design decisions that I wouldn't have made if I could turn back the clock, but overall, it has endured. I'm quite amazed. I believe Stuff It is even older than Zip, the current dominant PC compression format. Of course, Unix TAR outlives them all, but TAR doesn't compress, and I would argue that Unix Compress has been displaced by GZIP, so in terms of longevity, Stuff It has outlived quite a few of its peers. Stuff It's won some awards, which you can read about at www.raylau.com slash stuffit.html, capital S, capital I. How did you and Stuff It eventually end up with Aladdin Systems? By my senior year at Stuyvesant High School, it became clear that I needed someone else to take things over. I had discussions with a few publishers, including Software Ventures, the terminal emulation folks, and Fifth Generation, but as it turns out, Leonard Rosenthal, an early friend and still one today, eventually put me in touch with David Shargill, then Executive VP at Alduvi. One evening, I received a phone call from Dave. He spoke in a somewhat melodramatic manner, saying how the ship was sinking at Alduvi and how he and several others have resigned. Those who know Dave will know exactly what I mean by melodramatic. Anyway, 
He was starting a new company, Aladdin. One thing led to another, and in retrospect, it seemed quite a risky move going with a startup, but they were willing to let Stuff It be their flagship product, support my registered users, and so on. So I took the plunge. It was at least another year after signing that the royalties matched the rate of registrations at the time of signing. What was it like being a teenager entering the big leagues of software development? Was it intimidating to go from lowly shareware developer to commercial software project leader? Sometimes it works out being young, naive, and innocent. What is it that you do for a living? What college did you attend? Well, this wasn't that long ago. I'm still pursuing a PhD in computer science, completion likely by May 1998. All my degrees were from MIT, as my doctorate will be. During your time with Aladdin, were you instrumental in other Stuff It named products, such as Installer Maker and Drop Stuff? Drop Stuff was Leonard's idea, but Installer Maker was my baby. If you go back and look up some of the old MacTech magazine ads, you can find a direct attribution in one of them. Installer Maker was hashed out during one of my trips to Macworld San Francisco. With the initial blueprint, Daryl Lovato and I fleshed out the details for version 1 on his whiteboard. To this day, I believe it's a great concept. You have to remember that this was before there was Install Shield or even Configure on Unix. Stuff it wasn't first, time-wise, in its class, but Installer Maker was. There were various issues which prevented Installer Maker from maintaining its initial leadership position, but I'll leave it to others to analyze and comment. Why are you now apparently unaffiliated with Aladdin Systems completely? I am unaffiliated in terms of active participation, but I remain a passive stakeholder. Though you are no longer an active participant, do you offer product suggestions or test beta versions of Stuffit products? Are you in fact solely a passive stockholder? Of course we chat. It's always best to keep one's ears to the ground on both sides. But I'm realizing that it's someone else's baby now. Did you just decide to move on, or was there a falling out? At the time, I just completed my master's and was starting my doctoral dissertation. More and more of the engineering was shifting to Watsonville, and it was becoming more of their game. I was also becoming more wary of where Apple was going. I may have been a year early at the time, I guess. Finally, there was value to be realized in the separation transaction. The hobbyist economist in me viewed the situation as follows. Aladdin, having to pay royalties, faced distorted incentives which hindered maximizing the potential of the product. However, if for a sunk cost, the royalties could be eliminated, then the promise of undistorted incentives going forward would actually result in a higher value attributable to the product. This difference in value opened up the opportunity for a transaction to be structured. I think both Aladdin and I realized this. Not only that, our different views on the future of Apple resulted in different perceived values, which further fostered deal-making. Maybe this is all too much analysis, and maybe your characterization is better. It was time to move on. Do you resent Aladdin Systems at all for becoming so successful through products you created? Not at all. I hope they'll become even more successful. Okay, this isn't a completely disinterested statement, since I do have an equity interest. But in all honesty, the battle for an entrepreneur should not be over slicing the pie an extra 5 or 10% one way or the other. 
Rather, it should be on making the pie 100% or 500% bigger. Do you miss being known as the man who created Stuff It? You could be a software legend, and yet you're sort of stuck in the background now. Does this bother you? The thing I miss, especially when I look around at the Young Turks of 1998, the energy, vitality, and naivete, which can be quite empowering, of youth. Inevitably, as we age, we develop a little bit of the been-there-done-that mentality and also a bit of cynicism. I guess by saying cynicism, that is self-exposing, for I could have as easily chosen the term realism. Inevitably, there is some of what I call the Barry Diller syndrome. Face it, if you were in media and you created the fourth national network, what do you do for an encore? For some reason, I don't think a shopping channel makes the grade. Fortunately, I have another 95% to go before getting to such a milestone. What projects do you have in the works? Will we see more incredible utilities from you, or are you moving on? My latest hobby is palmpilotfiles.com, but that's just a hobby which grew out of my fondness for the pilot. As for software, well, believe that the value structure in the industry has changed, and software has become quite commoditized. Thus, I think I'll concentrate my efforts elsewhere. I'm not suggesting that I'm abandoning software, but rather that I see software more as the means to an end rather than the end itself. What types of projects do you see taking precedence over creating software titles? PalmPilotFiles.com is more of a hobby. It can't become economically viable without growing by a factor of 10. However, it does point to one theme that I believe. Whereas the core content is declining in value, how many free news sources are there on the net? What is increasing in value is people's time and attention. As we suffer more and more from information overload, due in part to the declining cost of content, our attention will be valued more and more. America Online already discovered this. Yahoo is getting there too. Meaningful aggregation, which some may insist on calling content, but I feel that editorial content is not quite the same as core content, is one way to capture attention spans. When people buy the Wall Street Journal, and I believe people will continue to for some time to come, it isn't really the news articles that are being bought. You can get the news for free from various sources. What you're really buying is the selection of articles and their layout. Although Wall Street Journal authors some of the articles and analyses, I think the real value is its aggregation of the information in a prioritized manner. So anything involving the capturing of eyeballs is interesting to me. Other areas include telecommunications, particularly wireless and high bandwidth, natural language, after all, speech recognition is the area of my PhD research, although I feel the truly useful advances here are some ways off, and small information delivery services are areas of interest. Telecommunications is definitely a revolution worth pondering. In my computing lifetime, I've witnessed a 5,000-fold increase in bandwidth coming into my computer. In 1984, it was 300 BPS modems. In January 97, I signed up for Media One Express, which delivers 1.5 megabits downstream. That outstrips the growth curves for anything else, including silicon. Today, a single strand of fiber can deliver 40 gigabits per second with off-the-shelf gear. Some expensive gear, but off-the-shelf. 
and I believe 3 terabits per second in the lab. Silicon can switch around 2.5 gigabits per second off the shelf and maybe 10 gigabits in the lab. So by one measure, telecom has already surpassed silicon. We may be complaining about 56K modems or even several megabit cable modems today, but I predict that within my expected lifetime, bandwidth demands by end users will become completely satiated. Think about electrical power. Unless you're in the wilderness, you have as much electrical capacity as you can possibly consume. The same will be true for telecom. I digress, but the point is, telecom is quite exciting. Fiber is becoming a solved problem. Most metropolitan areas have fiber to the pole now, but wireless still has some exciting possibilities. I won't even get into natural language because of its very early stage status. Hey Siri, are you still in an early stage? Hmm, I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? No, never mind. Do you stay informed regarding Apple and its progress? If so, what do you feel about recent developments at Apple, such as the work done by Steve Jobs and the new Apple Online Store website? I keep up casually, but not religiously. I'm not convinced that ending power computing and the clones was a good idea. On the website concept, well, didn't Dell do that several years back? Whoa! What's Michael Dell doing here? Well, I'll tell you what Michael Dell's doing here. In 1996, Dell pioneered the online store. And Dell's online store has become, up to now, the standard of e-commerce sites. They've done phenomenal business. Well, in the sort of it's a small world department, I'll tell you a story. Dell actually came to Next to write their online store. And Next wrote it. We used web objects and we used our people to actually write their store. And of course, as you know, Next is now part of Apple. And the people that wrote the Dell online store are Apple employees. And so we've been able to take that knowledge and technology and go much further with it. The one positive bit of news I hear is sealing Office 98. And from the more recent news, Oracle. Not being able to open Word 97 documents is really depressing. Ensuring the availability of key software will buy some time. If you were CEO of Apple, how would you run the company? If I only knew. A confession. I like the macOS much more for many things, such as day-to-day -day user computing. Show me a better editor on any platform than BBEdit. Please, Emacs fans need not apply. Or a better FTP client than Anarchy. Little things like that make the Mac pleasant. Of course, for server tasks, I wouldn't consider it. For example, WebStar is no comparison to running, say, Apache under Solaris 2.6. But I may be willing to make a departure when I next switch my personal computer. The key reason is, a lot of newer software and hardware is just plain not available for the Mac. It's not even a matter of paying a few extra dollars. This is particularly true with mobile platforms. Find me a CDPD wireless data solution for a PowerBook. CDPD was an analog cellular data transmission standard that ran at 19.2 kilobits per second. For all you kids out there who just bought 5G iPhone 12s, CDPD is considered 1G. Or a wireless LAN product as elegant as NetWaves. 
Remember, we're talking January 1998 here. Actually, I've had both on one of my office PC laptops since August of 97, so I'm already giving the PowerBook a five-month cushion to catch up. Apple needs to do something to allow users to come back. Having more elegant tools is not enough if those tools only cover 80% of what I want to do, as opposed to a less elegant set of tools which cover 100% of what I want to do. Apple's demise would be quite tragic given its contributions to computing. Back in present day, StuffIt's current owner, Smith Micro, announced StuffIt's end of life in December 2019. 